but because you are a child of God, therefore his anger is tempered, his anger is, is mediated by the grace of Christ and his ultimate wrath which he poured out upon him. Psalm 30 verse 5. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Isaiah 51, 22, thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. So certainly God has a temporal anger towards our sin. Yes, even the sin of his children, but it is for a moment as it were. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Now, those things are all true about God's anger, but there are some other things that are also true and things that we too must be careful to remember to emulate. God is slow to anger. Now, now hear me carefully. When it says God is slow to anger, it doesn't mean that he's slow to unrighteous anger because he's never unrighteously angry. Nor does it mean that he waits a while before he has indignation against sin. It can't mean that because by his very nature, he has indignation towards sin every day, all the time. What slow to anger in the Bible means is that God is slow to exercise the punishment due those who make him angry. That's the issue. And we too are to be the same. Although God is instantly angry against sin, he is slow. He waits in his exercise of punishment towards that sin because he is kind and gracious. Exodus 34, 6. And when Moses asked to know about the glory of God, God says, well, I can't reveal, you can't see my glory. It would overcome you. My presence is too much, but I'll tell you about it. I'll explain to you what makes me glorious. I will give you objectively why I am full of glory. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So although God is, as it were, instantly angry against all sin all the time, he is slow to exercise what must be or, or what will be the righteous outcome of, of, that, of his anger, which is punishment towards those who sin. We are to be the same. We have anger against sin. It comes instantly. It, it we're really born to that if we're true believers, and yet we are slow in the exercise even of that righteous anger. God's anger towards his people also, something we need to understand, is temporary. Or it simply means that his anger towards his people is disciplinary. It is not ultimate punishment unto eternal hell. See, the Lord reacts in righteous anger to bring discipline on his people, but his overall disposition towards them is not anger, but favor and blessing. And this is so important for us to understand. God can exercise a holy anger against the sin of his people without rejecting them entirely or without judging them unto eternal hell. But this also means that the flip side is true. Right? That if God exercises his anger, 
right? That he does so lovingly. He doesn't overlook the sin of his people. So simply because they are his people doesn't mean that he doesn't get angry against their sin. It simply means that his anger is tempered by his grace so that they do not spend eternity in hell. We would do well to remember this because we tend to to move on either ends of this extreme. People say, well, you're a child of God, so how can he actually be angry with you? All that anger is gone in Christ. He has no anger against sin. Yes, he has anger against your temporal sin, because he must. God cannot be unmoved by your daily sin. But because you are a child of God, therefore his anger is tempered. His anger is, is mediated by the grace of Christ and his ultimate wrath, which he poured out upon him. Psalm 30, verse 5. His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Isaiah 51, 22, thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. So certainly God has a temporal anger towards our sin. Yes, even the sin of his children, but it is for a moment as it were. And we will one day experience the fullness of his pleasure when our sin is completely removed. Also, we need to understand that God's anger is appeased by humility and repentance. Now, it is ultimately appeased, as we will see at our communion time this morning, by the sacrifice of Christ. But temporally, regularly, daily, his anger against sin is appeased by humility and repentance. And even, again, in in the fullness of it, if you are repenting for the first time and coming underneath the sacrifice of Christ, then that's how his, his overall anger is appeased. And then moment by moment, we appease his anger against our daily sin with humility and repentance. Second Chronicles 12, 12. And when he humbled himself, the anger of the Lord turned away from him so as not to destroy him completely. Zephaniah 2, 3, seek the Lord. All you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's Anger. And so our anger needs to emulate God in this as well. Even our righteous anger, we need to be slow to the exercise of that anger. Consider your children. They sin against you, certainly. And there's a righteous anger towards their sin, the fact that they are violating the commands of a holy God and ultimately themselves trampling underfoot the sacrifice of Christ when they disobey. So there's a righteous anger that flares. But you must be careful, even in your exercise of that, towards your children. You're slow to anger. You're careful. You implement biblical principles. And that's next is that we need to obey God's word concerning our anger. If we are ever to have any hope of exercising righteous anger, which again, for humans, is very difficult and almost always tainted with some measure of selfishness, if we're ever to have a hope of trying to emulate Christ and emulate God, then of course we have to bound our anger, our righteous anger, biblically. Again, we must only be angry at the things that God is angry at, and that's the first one there. Hate only what God hates. So to obey God's word concerning anger, and I think you have to write these in underneath as well. Number two is obeying God's word concerning anger. You're going to have to hate only what God hates, but certainly we are called to hate it. And this is one of the reasons that I I think I can say with confidence that we as believers are called to have a righteous anger. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth, I hate. Hatred and anger are tied directly together. We don't hate something that we're not ultimately angry at. Our anger expresses our hatred towards it. And we are to hate sin. In fact, this is fundamental to actually defeating sin in your own life. Until you learn to hate it, to have an anger directed towards sin because it violates the character of God and tramples the sacrifice of Christ, then you aren't actually going to stop sinning. 
You will continue to hold those sins in your life. You will try to avoid them and they will come back. You will set them aside and they will overcome you again. There's a righteous anger towards sin that you must learn to cultivate. Why? Not because it harms you particularly, not even because it harms someone else, although, as we've said, that's a reason for anger, but in the biggest picture because God sent his son to die for it. It violates his character and nature and tramples underfoot the sacrifice of Christ. So if we are to obey God's word concerning anger, the only way that we can bound it righteously, then we must hate what God hates. We must then develop discretion. Oh, you see, if you don't develop along with your hatred of anger a proper biblical wisdom and discretion, then you will almost always move towards unrighteous anger. You see, this is the problem with most believers. You see, when you come to Christ, you are the, what comes built in is a hatred of sin because the Spirit of God is living inside of you. You can't even avoid that. There's nothing you can do. You will have a hatred towards sin. But hear me, if you don't develop discretion, what happens is even the righteous hatred towards sin that flares will be expressed unrighteously and unbiblically because you are a fool, because you are not gaining biblical wisdom. And so you see, in one sense, the believer without discretion is one of the most dangerous people on the faces of the earth. Because he has built in a righteous anger against sin that literally is the spirit of God inside of him. And if he doesn't learn to control it, it flares out improperly and he harms and he hurts. Develop discretion, Proverbs 19.11. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. And I don't believe there we're talking slow to unrighteous anger. We're talking slow even to the expression of righteous anger. He's slow. His discretion makes him slow. He knows when and how to express that righteous anger properly, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. He learns when to express the anger, when to withhold, when to instruct, when to bring discipline. All oh, that men and women in our congregation, in our churches, had a better understanding of this kind of discretion, because then the righteous anger could be properly channeled towards productively disciplining their children, dealing with sin in their families, dealing with sin in the church, and even dealing with sin in society. They would have the right ways to do it if only we would develop discretion. But here's our problem. Discretion takes work. Anger, in one sense, doesn't take a lot of work. It comes built in. Discretion takes work. And that's the work we don't like to do. Along with this, there must be the exercise of self-control, and the two go hand in hand. If you're not growing in self-control, you aren't developing discretion. And as you develop discretion, proper wisdom of biblical principles and their application in daily life, then you will grow in self-control as well. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. So please don't hear from me, you know, God is strong in his anger, and he's angry against disobedience, and he's angry against people who trample underfoot the sacrifice of his son. So you go home saying, ha-ha, here's my chance. A lot of sin going on in my family. I'll be angry. No, he was slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules the spirit, then he who captures the city. It should be that never once out of our lips flows a comment which is driven by unrighteous anger. Only those which are carefully, carefully controlled through biblical principles. So any expression of righteous anger is properly directed in exactly the right measure at exactly the right time, only to the individuals who need to receive it. Now that would be a pretty powerful expression of anger, would it not? 
And again, what do you see in the world? The world doesn't know how to do this. They get angry at something, and what do they do? They express it by looting and harming and, and expressing it in all kinds of places and ways that's not appropriate at all. But they don't know any better. You do. You and I know better. Who are we to judge them who know, who don't know better? Now, I understand they ought to know the rule of law, all of those things. I get that. But who are we when we can't control our own anger, when, when we can't direct properly our righteous anger against sin? And we expect that the world would know how to do this? They would understand how to properly express anger? They don't, they don't understand it. They don't know what to do with it. So we must be the ones who set the example. God, hate what God hates, develop discretion, exercise self-control, and bring the proper Bible-directed response. Truly righteous anger must be directed towards a God-honoring, Bible-driven response. Some sort of action should be taken towards the person or situation driving the anger. If you are angry, then you need to take action. Something needs to be done. Otherwise, your anger will be expressed inappropriately. You keep stuffing it down and stuffing it down, pretending that it doesn't exist, and what happens? It explodes somewhere. Even righteous anger is not to be stuffed down. It's not to be pretend you don't pretend that, well, it doesn't exist. Dispassionate will turn into the Jedi Council, as I mentioned at the beginning. We'll all sit around with, you know, this, this vapid, foolish, you know, we don't hate anything because we're all at peace with what? No. We must properly respond to things that are sinful. What do we do? Well, I'll just give you a couple ideas here. I'll, there'll be more later. And again, you just got to write these somewhere. There's probably no, no room on the outline for any of this. Prayer is almost always in order. You can always do that. You hate what the government is doing because it's sinful? Then you ought to be on your knees. Is the amount of words that come out of your mouth to other people about your disagreement with the government the same as the amount of words that come out to God in praying for it? I think probably not. I'm as guilty of that as you, so I don't stand in judgment upon you for that in that sense, but I am less ready to pray than I am to complain at any given level. So prayer is always appropriate. Discipline, if it's within your sphere of authority, may also be appropriate. You need to decide, does discipline need to be meted out for this, for this unrighteous act that was committed? And then perhaps some sort of action to alleviate the cause of the anger should be contemplated, perhaps if it's governmental evil, perhaps if it's e evil of, of someone else against another person, you would consider how is it that I can step in and stop that? How is it that I can enter into process to help alleviate that problem? But always... And most importantly, continually, we are to bring the gospel to bear. Isn't that really the ultimate way to solve the problems concerning evil? Even if you are disciplining your children, aren't you also bringing the gospel to bear, understanding that if you just bring discipline to them and do not give them the means by which they might somehow deal with the sin that they are committing, that, that you are failing them? It's the same way with our society. You may hate what the government does in, in, in ways that it is evil, and you may try to enter into the process. Those things are right and good. That can help direct your anger properly, but ultimately, they're going to have to know Jesus. Ultimately, Christ is going to have to receive the exaltation in their lives before they're going to stop sinning. And so, always, the gospel is our final response. Always bringing the gospel to bear, whether it be in calling for, for restoration and, and seeking to 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 contemplate and to, to accomplish righteous action, always the gospel is at the core of that. Now, I'd like to give you one example here of a good Bible-directed response from the Apostle Paul when he, was, when he was angered by the evil of his society. I'd like to point out a couple of things here, and uh, hopefully this will be helpful. Turn to Acts chapter 17, because again, the idea that we should never be angry, I don't think certainly is found in Scripture. 
as I've already said, Ephesians 4, and I think Acts gives us a little bit of a picture of what a righteous anger towards societal evil might look like. I want you to notice a couple things in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's waiting to hear a report from Timothy and Epaphroditus, whom he's left behind uh, in Thessalonica. He's waiting to hear how things are going. So he waits in Athens, and his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city. I notice I've stopped there if you're reading in your text. And that's about as far as we sometimes tend to go. We look at the city, we look at the country, we say, there's a lot of evil here. Things going on we don't like. Can't believe these, you know, it's taxes that I don't like. And I think that's unfair. And, and you know, it's the other things going on. I, you know, it's not right. I, I shouldn't have to do these kinds of things. It often tends to be very self-focused, our anger. Not always, but oftentimes. So we look around at the, at the government and at, at our city and other things. We grow angry against the evil, what we consider to be the evil committed against us. And it may be unfair. It may actually be evil. But notice what Paul observed in his culture. This is what made him provoked. His spirit was being provoked. And I believe we have righteous anger described right there. He's looking around. He sees the city, and he saw the city full of idols. Now, see, why is that fundamentally provoking the Apostle Paul? Because he loves Jesus. And anything that isn't the worship of Jesus makes Paul mad. May I say that? I think Scripture says that. I think that's what it says. Paul saw that people were doing something other than worshiping Jesus, and he was mad because Jesus deserves to be worshipped. He's the one who died. He's the king of the universe. He's the one who came and shed his blood for us, and people are pouring out libations and work and money towards idols, and he hated it. And he was reflecting the heart of his God in doing so. Now I ask you, your anger that you have towards evil, is it driven by this? The anger that you have towards the culture, is it driven by the fact that the culture doesn't worship Jesus? Is your love of Jesus and your understanding of the cross what drives your anger? If it isn't, it's sin. It's as simple as that. That's why it's so hard for us to be righteously angry because we aren't consumed with Jesus. And so our anger is driven by our selfishness. Even when someone else is being hurt, as wrong and as deep as that is, unbelievers can feel anger over other people being hurt. And it's still unrighteous anger because it's not, the right, it's not directed properly. If someone is hurting another person, what are they doing? They are harming someone who is created in the image of God. Ultimately, all of that is related back to who Jesus is. We don't have time this morning to even get into the idea that when you undo that man is made in the image of God and you undo the glory of God and ultimately the glory of Christ who came as a man, then you undo all the commandments and certainly the commandment to murder. It means nothing. Why would we bother? Why would, it, why would we care if we hated someone else if they're just another animal? Animals hate each other. That's fine. But believers cannot and must not, but not simply because they are human beings, but because they are created in the image of God and ultimately because they are the ones for whom Christ died. Does that drive your anger? When your children sin, it's the same. The anger should be driven by the fact that they are dishonoring Christ. Yes, they're dishonoring you, and that's related, but it's not exactly the same, and you need to make sure to point that out to them. When your spouse is sinning or doing something that is wrong, maybe angry at you, maybe in some way sinning in the home, are you angry because they're violating the commands of a holy God and ultimately they are not honoring Christ, or are you just mad because they're not doing what you want? And I understand that there's often a, a conflicting between the two, and there's both of those there. You're going to have to learn to get rid of the one 
That is anger simply because they're not meeting your personal needs that you wanted. They're somehow violating your space and your selfishness and learn how to, how to fully understand that they're violating what, who Christ is and then respond to them on the basis of that. And then you will have righteous anger. So I didn't even finish this out. I need to. So the apostle Paul was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he went on Fox News. He said, no more of this. We will have no more idols. Let me give you 15 reasons why idols are, you know, they're evil against society, why they're bugging me, why, why we shouldn't have them. Let's get 15 other commentators. He drew them around. No, he didn't do that. Right? Well, let's write a blog. Let's write 15 blog posts about, you know, idols. Now, what did he do? So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Now, what was, he, what was he preaching? Verse 18 reveals that to us. Some of the Epicureans and uh, Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle battle wish to say? See, he, he, you could say, well, maybe he's engaging them at the level of culture. This is bad for culture. You need to stop worshiping these idols because this will be harmful. No. He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's the answer to cultural evil. That's the answer to the sin in society. That's the answer for your children's disobedience to you. That's your answer for your spouse who is wrestling to love you. Jesus and the resurrection. Are you sure it's that simple? Yes, I am. I understand that that fleshes out in the obedience to Christ and what we've been talking about in sanctification, but that's fundamental. That's the place that we go. And when we bound our anger properly, and, and respond to the righteous anger of God that rises within us through the preaching of and application of the truth of Jesus and the resurrection, then we can be righteously angry, and only then. Now, that's as far as we're going to get this morning. We've got a lot more to do as we try to flesh out, okay, because you might still be asking, Give me, I need some practical principles here. And maybe you already know them, and I don't have to do them, but next week we'll do them, because I think it would be helpful. It's helpful for me. But this leads me perfectly and, and intentionally to what? The cross, to communion. That's what we're here for. So if the men would come forward, I'd like to have you turn to Romans chapter 1. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. 
Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.